What's up? My name is Dwayne Jones. I'm an artist and a designer and the founder of a lifestyle brand called Art Pays Me. And I love talking to people who are driven to create and make the world a better place with their work. Welcome to a special six-part series of Art Pays Me called Craft Pays Me, where I'll be talking to six craftspeople who represent a cross-section of mediums and stages in their careers. I want to give a special thank you to Julie Roswell and Craft Nova Scotia for making this possible. We'll hear from Julie at the beginning of each episode in the series. And I also want to give a thank you to Arts Nova okay. Scotia for their additional support in this project. Uh, hi, Dwayne. How are you? Let's get into it. I'm good. How are you? Um, so, again, here, Julie Roswell with Craft Nova Scotia for the fifth installment of the Art Pays Me, Craft Pays Me miniseries. Yeah. Uh, so we're pretty excited to be here once again. Uh, this time around, it's Rhonda Miller, who is a bookbinder, uh, and paper maker, and all kinds of wonderful things. Uh, she teaches at our Center for Craft quite often. Um, she restores books. Uh, she binds books. And uh, we really love having people who have that I guess that diversity of of ways that they make a living from their craft. Uh, so I think it's going to be a great conversation. And uh, you know, Craft Nova Scotia is excited to keep this series going. And uh, we'll uh, I'll see you for the next installment. All right. Thanks, Julie. All right. Short and sweet. <laughs> yeah. See ya. So, Rhonda. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. So um, Julie gave us a little bit of an intro, but I, I always like to give people an opportunity to tell me what they do in their own words. So what is it that you do? Well, I do find this hard to answer sometimes. <laughs> so the first answer is that I'm a bookbinder, but even then people don't really know what that entails. Um, so um, I make books by, from scratch by hand. Um, I do as much of it by hand as well, all of it really, because I don't really have any equipment to do like automated stuff. So it's all very much handbook binding. So I make like blank books to some extent that sell as journals. I make, I bind books for people that are printed texts so that they've, they've had it printed somewhere else because I, I'm not a print shop. So they get it printed, bring it to me and I bind Either it might be one copy, but it might be a small edition of 20 or something. So I do that for some people. Um, and I do a lot, I fix books and do book restoration. So those are kind of the things I do as a as a bookbinder. Okay. Basically. And I teach bookbinding, which I also quite enjoy. Okay. Yeah. Are you like a paper nerd like are you like obsessed with different types of paper well i i hoard certain paper okay. <laughs> i i have a yeah i think that would be a fair thing to say that yeah. i i like to acquire paper <laughs> i'm wondering like you if you just see a certain type of paper and you're like you know what i would love to make a book out of that yes that happens mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Japanese paper are, is a particular weakness um, because I, anyone who's familiar with Japanese paper would probably understand this because it's it just feels so nice and there's 
there's so many beautiful papers out there, but yeah, Mm -hmm. it's really, it's really easy to hoard that stuff. And then I get it. And then I'm for, sometimes I'll hold onto it for a long time before I'll start cutting it up or doing something with it. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. Is that more delicate? Like Japanese paper is more delicate than say other kinds of paper? Well, it feels delicate, but it's actually uh, quite strong. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's, or at least, I mean, there's a full range. You can get sort of cheaper paper, but the good stuff is quite strong, but it does feel sort of delicate. Yeah. Okay. All right. And um, you're, you're based in Nova Scotia currently. Yes. I'm living in Halifax. Yeah. And you do grow up here? I, yeah, I've lived in Nova Scotia most of my life. I did go to university in New Brunswick for four years. I don't know if that counts as living <laughs> somewhere else. <laughs> but yeah, I've been in, in Nova Scotia most of the time. I grew up on a dairy farm in the middle of rural Nova Scotia. Yeah. That's how it okay. all started. That's how yeah. it all started. And you know what? Yeah. I, I include that. When people say, how long have you lived in Halifax? I, I include my university days as when I moved right. here. I've been in Halifax for how long have I been in Halifax? Uh, since the late, like since 1999. Okay. Something like that. Yeah. We came around the same time. I'm yeah. 2000. Yeah. That's about when I moved here, I think. Previous, I lived in Truro and then, you know, so, but it took me a while to get to Halifax. But then once I came here, I haven't left yet. So, right. Right. Yeah. So, so what was it like growing up on the, you said the farm? Yeah, it was a dairy farm. Dairy farm. Yeah. I was pretty uh, free, sort of. You know, when I compare to what the child, the especially the young childhood years of my own kids living here in Halifax, where they, you know, you barely let them leave the house <laughs> until they're adults, you know, yeah. on their own. Um yeah, I, I think I think we just got kicked out in the morning and and you know come back at supper time kind of thing. Yeah, and I don't. It feels like I'm sure this isn't exactly true, but it feels like like my parents had no idea what we were doing all the time. But yeah, I'm sure that's not true. But <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that's what it felt like looking back. No, but I I the same thing. I feel the same way about my upbringing because mm-hmm. I'm like. We literally were doing some stuff where we could have seriously got hurt and nobody knew where we were. Yeah, well, that's <laughs> that's part of it, because in this being in a rural area, I would go off in the woods by myself yeah. and <laughs> whatever. Yeah, like anything could have happened. It didn't. But, yeah. you know, <laughs> yeah, we're, we all survived so far. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, and you're the, you have your business, um, My Handbound Books. Yeah, that's what I started out. I, I set up a blog in 2007, mm-hmm. and that's what I called it, My Handbound Books. So I kind of used that for a long time. Um, and I still use that for blank journals. That's the little thing I put in the back. It says My oh. Handbound Books, or if it has a tag on it. Uh, in 2015... I acquired um, Scotia Bookbinding, sort of did a little merger, but it was more of an acquisition if you want to get into the technical business terms, because the 
previous owner is completely unconnected to it anymore. I just bought it out. And okay. so I, I got his equipment and his customers and whatnot. And so since 2015, I, I also used that as my sort of actual business name, Scotia Bookbinding. Uh, how was, I don't really hear that too much in our type of industry, at least not, not at this level. How was that for you? Did you find that you instantly now had this big, larger customer base that you didn't have before? It, it changed um, quite a bit. So prior to that, I did almost exclusively blank journals okay. and um, and I sold uh, at craft shows and that sort of thing. When I, when I bought Scotia Bookbinding, it came with equ- equipment that I didn't have before, mm-hmm. which allowed me to do more stuff. So one of the the main thing that the previous owner of Scotia Bookbinding was doing, he he was focusing mostly on thesis bindings for the universities. So that was the first thing, that was the main thing that I started doing in addition to my previous work was that I started doing bindings for the universities. And that has carried through. So I couldn't have done that stuff before because I didn't have the right gear. So so that was, it was, it expanded what I could do. So the whole thing took on more of a, more of a business feel as opposed to a crafter feel, I, I think, if that makes okay. sense. Cool. And then once, once I got myself, that was when I moved out of my house too. So I went from being in a little room of the house into an actual space external to my living situation and and so I could I could kind of go there during the day and do things and so I started doing it more trying to do it full-time although I it's never been really full-time because I always come home at the same time the kids come home from school Uh so they're short days but um but yeah so that's when I started sort of doing it as a job right how did that feel that transition point I really enjoyed being able to leave my house. Yeah. <laughs> um, which is interesting given COVID times when so many people are now unable or just have don't have as many reasons to leave their house or can't or whatever. Um, yeah, it is nice to leave your house sometimes. Yeah, I was telling <laughs> Rhonda uh, before we started, I just went back to my day jobs office uh, for the first time in a year, and it felt like I was in Resident Evil. It was just a dark hallway <laughs> in a basement, no one there. It's like my office is exactly as I left it a year ago. Uh, uh, was there <laughs> like a, a moldy sandwich on the desk? <laughs> Luckily, no. Uh, That's good. <laughs> and it wasn't really dusty, which is weird to me. But um, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I suppose you'd expect there'd be cobwebs or something. Yeah. Yeah, but I did like see my notebook with like my pen just sitting there and some whatever I was scribbling down that day. I was like, oh, wow, this is so odd. Yeah, yeah. Well, and last summer, uh, I hardly went to my studio at all um, when the kids were homeschooling and stuff. And and I wasn't we weren't leaving, you know, between, say, last March and August when it was it was we were staying home in this in our home as well and um I had that bit of an experience like that just going back to my own studio and I'm like oh there's a bunch of stuff that's half finished and 
you know, yeah. and it had just been left there languishing for, for six months or whatever. Yeah. But when the, when, because we were very lucky to have our schools opening and that seems to be going really well. Um, now that my kids are back at school, life is kind of returned to normal here because they go. And then I go to the studio every day again. And yeah, it feels, it's such a luxury now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. That's cool. Um, and we, so I, I just mentioned my day job. So it's at Dow. I do information management. So we have this connection. You did the master of library and information science degree. I, I did. did the master of information management degree. Right. There's and some overlap there. Yeah. There's some overlap. Yeah. Yeah. So like same classes and same teachers and things probably. Yeah. <laughs> Shouldn't be the professors, I guess I should call them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, so I finished my master's at Dell in 2005. Okay. So, yeah, they had just moved into the new building. Um, most of my the time I was there, the library and information science department was in the library. Okay. <laughs> Oddly. <laughs> and then they, they moved into the new building right or just I, I my last little while was was uh, a little bit of time in the new building, but not much. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Mine was, I was, I came like, I was pretty much all the new building, but mine was all online. It was just, were they doing online at that point in 2005? I didn't do any online classes. Okay. And I, I did it part-time too. So I, I did my master's over four years. Okay. Cause I was, I was working in it at the time. <laughs> right. So, yeah. Yeah. But that seems like a, yeah, a lifetime ago. Yeah, I know. Completely, completely different. I'm still <laughs> yes. straddling like two universes between the art and the and the information management, and now yeah. my brain to, like switch all the time. Uh, yeah. Did you end up binding your own thesis, or was that not? No, quite I, <laughs> I didn't. And I, I, uh, it was during my library degree that I started bookbinding. So there okay. were the Dawson Print Shop, which now exists at NASCAD. The College of Art and Design. That was at Dalhousie at the time. Yeah. And so they had uh, courses in the in the bindery and the print shop. And they like they're on my transcript as non-credit courses um, from Dal. Huh. As um handbound books one, handbound books two, and <laughs> book repair. Like there were these full university length courses. Uh, so that's that's how it got started. So I was, but I was barely started making books at the time I finished my degree at Dow. So I, uh, yeah, but it was a, it's, it's a slippery slope. Uh, bookbinding is, I find people who get, when I'm teaching, I can tell the people in the workshop who are getting bitten by the bookbinding bug, so to speak, because they just, they start coming back to every workshop. <laughs> and that's what I did the first couple of years. I just couldn't stay away. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. So, um, you actually you got the Heritage Washi Award for your um your book in the Canadian book binding and book art. I did. Field. Yeah. Yeah. Like I was that. <laughs> I was really pleased with myself, if I I'd have to say. Uh, which is a little weird, but yeah, just I mean they um the cabbage, which is the Canadian book binders and book artists guild. They host an exhibit every, I think it's every five years. And uh, they, 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 they get 
like hundreds of submissions. They accept about, I think, 50 or 75 to, to put in the exhibit that travels across Canada. And I was thrilled just to be, to have my book selected as one of the, one of the group that was going to travel in the exhibit. Mm-hmm. That was, honestly, that was enough. I, I thought that was, I was perfectly happy with that, that they picked my book. I was like, that's awesome. They even pay out the little fee for a gallery exhibit, you know, <laughs> which not everybody does that, but they did. Um, yeah. And so to win the Heritage Washi Award for my book was was a, a super added bonus. And and speaking of Japanese paper, that's it was made entirely with Japanese paper. Um. So the, that's so in order to win that particular award. They, they, the book had to be made, I think something like 70% heritage Japanese paper. So in my case, I had used Japanese heritage papers, which are recognized by the government of Japan as a, it's kind of like a UNESCO heritage industry where they, because paper making is so ancient in Japan, Mm -hmm. that it's a protected industry. And so um, my book was using papers from one of those. Um, family paper makers that have been around for a thousand years or whatever. Cool. Yeah. So like it's pretty exciting. Yeah. To win an award and be proud of the work uh, that's, you know, sometimes you, you get acknowledged for something and you're not necessarily like that happy with it, but like to have those things go and work together so well. Yeah. And honestly, the little, it, it's a really small little book and it's, it's very, the, the, someone recently referred to it as a quiet book, which I thought was a nice way to put it because it is, it's small and it's very lightweight. And, and I thought that was interesting that they called it a quiet book. And uh, yeah. And I, I, I think it's probably one of the, of all the books I've made, which is a lot of books, it's, you know, of one of my favorites for sure. And it had in it, I wrote, uh, in order to be in that exhibit, the book had to have content, which isn't, I don't generate content normally. Okay. Um, so I, I actually had written a, a short essay on the history of the book in China, which is what's in the book on Japanese uh, paper. So like it's, handwritten. <laughs> I, I, well, no, I actually did it on the computer and printed it didn't that freak you out like putting printing on that paper yes (laughs) yes because that paper is very expensive (laughs) and uh yeah (laughs) and I I don't I didn't ruin too many pieces of it putting it through the printer but there were a few duds so I did a lot of tests before I put the actual paper through the printer but it worked fine and it looked nice in the end so yeah no I my hand lettering is not good enough to do it by that would have been lovely I did do the marbling on the cover (laughs) which was Japanese marbling and I even ground the ink myself that I used in the marbling so yeah I mean that part was I did do that but no hand lettering cool and getting like the signatures to line up the right way and that that was very tricky it is very tricky yeah and and not that's not my strong point. I don't do, you know, desktop publishing normally, so um, that was outside my comfort zone. But the and the end result was was quite nice. 
Yeah. So you just mentioned marbling. How does uh, marbling work? Because I've seen some of the paper you did, and it's got like this this trippy, like uh, effect yeah. to it. Like yes, and Japanese marbling is very is very is ink on water, so it's it's very fluid, and and um, calm. It, mm. it and in fact, I believe that the technique um, is a bit meditative, and I think it was meant to be. So when you're doing it, you're meant to everything's supposed to be quiet and gentle and all that stuff. The more common marbling, which is like the stuff you would get, people see it in like bookshops and whatnot, especially in like Italy and whatnot. And you see it on the inside of books and it's actually originated in Turkey and it is paint, not ink. So it's a much brighter colors and, and um, that you can manipulate and make very specific patterns. Mm. So that's, that's what most people think of when they think of marbling, but yeah, so I do, I do my own marbling and I teach marbling as well. So. Okay. So with, with the Japanese process it looks almost like um watercolor in a way would you say yeah it's a bit it does it's a bit more washed out okay it's a uh, transparent almost because they would mm -hmm. i think they actually would uh, write calligraphy over top of it right when, when they first sort of invented it <laughs> you know back in like a long time ago i can't come up with the year at the moment but it's yeah. been around a long time right right yeah so we we talked about the library science background. Are you a big reader? I do. I do read a lot, actually. <laughs> um, and especially in the last year, I seem to have had even more time for reading. It's yeah. been kind of nice. Yeah. Cool. And yeah. so is that like what sort of drew you to books initially? It does seem like everything in my life has has been related somehow yeah because even as a kid I read a lot and I can remember my I had a I had two older brothers and but when I was a kid I was the only one that was making my mother drag me to the library mm -hmm. you know <laughs> nobody else wanted to go to the library but yeah. I yeah I can remember my mom taking me to the library which was just nobody else in my family was doing that and <laughs> But I was going and getting books at the library and and she was always trying to find stuff for me to read, like, mm -hmm. which was not a problem she had with my brothers. <laughs> uh, they had other things to do. Uh, so so I do think that I was re I was reading quite a lot as a kid and continued to do so, did my bachelor's degree in English literature and then a library science degree and then became a bookbinder. <laughs> so, Yeah. Right, right. There's no escaping it. <laughs> how do you, how do you find um, like parenting and being involved in what you're involved in? Are your kids interested in bookbinding or craft in any way? Well, my biggest kid, who's 16, I think has decided that because I'm so involved in books, that he will, he will resist them. <laughs> And <laughs> like, it's his form of rebellion Got you. <laughs> to have nothing to do with books. <laughs> Although he's, he, he's not that bad, but um, he's kind of anti book. 
will say my my younger one who's still a bit malleable um I still have some influence on the younger one uh (laughs) she she um she's interested in what I do and I have heard her say that she wants to be a bookbinder when she grows up I'm I feel like that might change but (laughs) we'll see yeah but but they both like to make things I think um or go through phases of liking to sort of make things. Right. Right. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So, um, from the practical side, how do you determine, like if someone approaches you and says, Hey, I'd like you to recover this book, or I have an idea for a notebook or something like that. For me, like I'm a graphic designer, I might have a concept of a book that I want to create. How do you figure out pricing for something like that? Yeah. Yeah. That's, I think, is that everybody's biggest challenge um, in this industry? (laughs) Um, I mean, the the obvious answer is materials plus time, but Mm -hmm. that's doesn't really work out that way. Most of the time Um, I do there, obviously materials are a factor because if someone comes to me and wants something done in a fine leather, then that's obviously going to be more expensive than if they, want a fake leather mm-hmm. you know so there's obvious times where pricing can be sort of adjusted based on the materials but it's the time factor that's the bigger problem and then especially in something like if I'm doing a bit of book restoration where I'm actually not introducing a whole lot of material yeah. I'm just sort of fixing the existing book with minimal materials, but it might take days, you know? So then I'm, I'm trying to figure out, yeah, I guess more of a effort-based price. Yeah. Just tricky. And then, and then making it fit into expectations of your customer and that sort of thing. Right. It's a balancing act that I have not figured out exactly. I, uh, yeah, it's so frustrating for me too. It's just like my son and my wife will say, Hey, didn't you price that based on a certain amount of time? And I'm like taking five times longer than I estimated I would take. And I can't explain why. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So then I started doing like more standardized prices based on, um, you know, just what it is instead of how long it takes. But then, you know, sometimes it takes way less than I estimate. Sometimes it takes way longer than I estimate. And then I'm like, yeah. you know, at my experience level, should I just have a certain price and that's it? But then I'm like, I don't want to charge my customer a million dollars because I happen to have creative block and took five days longer than I expected. Right. The experience level is an interesting comment there because I think a lot of people don't think about that when they're pricing too. Cause you know, it's been 20 years since I started bookbinding 20, Mm -hmm. 21, I guess now, cause it was around the year 2000 that I first got involved. And um, so if you're, and I, I, I stopped doing craft shows a few years ago, um, they would have stopped for the pandemic anyway, but mm-hmm. um, but I had made a decision a few years ago to stop doing that um, because I determined that it it wasn't 
the bottom line wasn't actually very profitable doing craft shows in spite of the fact that on the day it might feel like you're making money. Um, if you really start to look at it, it's, it's not that great. Uh, <laughs> um, oh, where was I going with that? Oh, but if you're in that situation and you've got, I'm making journals with 20 years experience and, and quite a bit yeah. of training, training and knowledge behind me. And there's someone else making journals who figured it out from a YouTube video <laughs> and, and hasn't, it isn't even really doing it right. I mean, I, I don't like to be too critical because there's not necessarily a wrong way to do it, but mm -hmm. it's, it's a different thing. There's some technique that could be worked. Yeah. Out. And so if our journals are crazily different in price, that is kind of hard to explain to a customer who doesn't know the difference. Right. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's true. That's a mm -hmm. very good example of, of, of that. And, and, putting yourself sometimes side by side just makes it more complicated. And yeah. I also found too with me, certain technical things got easier and faster as I got more experienced. So then I'm like, should I be charging less because I got better? Right. <laughs> like I've had that. I've had that experience <laughs> too. Um, yeah. The, there's a few, like the, the leather journals that I have for sale at designer craft shop. Mm -hmm. uh, designercraftshop.ca. I've been, th that's what I would always make for often. I, that's what I would have things like that at craft shows. And, and now I'm making them almost just, just for the designer craft shop. I don't really make them otherwise, mm -hmm. but those are the sorts of things that I've been making them for so long that they don't take me as long as they used mm -hmm. to, but I don't think that makes them worthless. <laughs> well, exactly. Yeah. And, and I've also, I would say the ones I'm making now are better than the ones I made 15 years ago because I'm better at it and I'm, I'm pickier about my materials. Yep. So I think I'm probably using better quality materials in comparison to, mm -hmm. so, so I might make them a bit faster, but they're, they're definitely not cheaper than the ones I did 15 years ago. No, definitely. <laughs> I, I, that's, that's where I think sometimes, at least from the consultant side as a designer and, and other like, sometimes clients will push you to say, well, how long does that take? And I try to avoid that conversation as <laughs> yeah, much as possible too. because it's just like, A, it's very hard to quantify creativity and B, just like that. Like it, it, doesn't took, me 20, it, yeah. it took me 20 years to get to this point where I can do that thing in two hours. Right. It used to take me 10 hours. So yeah. I'm not going to charge you less because it happens to take me two hours today. Right. Yeah. yeah they're <laughs> paying for your expertise. So, and your skill. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. <laughs> the the yeah. funny thing is though, if I had kept that hourly rate back then, it probably would work out to the same price because of how long it took me. Um, so. Right. <laughs> right. Exactly. Uh, anyway, but I was, I was trying to, I was always undercutting myself. Uh, yeah, I think a lot of um, people do that when you're making, yeah, self, anyone who's kind of self-employed doing their own creative thing. Yeah, it's very, very difficult to sell yourself high. It's easy to sell yourself low. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And that first customer that pushes back and like gives you that, like, are you insane? Like, that's what you're trying to charge? It, it like hurts. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, yeah. 
I mean, I, so, I mean, I've got to the point now where I have kind of a base rate for anyone who brings me book repair. Uh-huh. Like I kind of have a starting point, and if they're not willing to hit the starting point, then they probably don't really need their book fixed. Uh-huh. And you're, <laughs> right? you're you're fine with just letting them walk away at this point. Yeah, so I'm I'm pretty upfront. Most of my communications start via email, okay. um, so people will, and so I can. I mean, in my first response, I give them a range <laughs> that starts at my starting point and up, basically. Mm-hmm. And they, so they can, at that point, walk away. They don't, yeah. they can just never respond if that's out, outside of their comfort zone. Right. Yeah. That, that, that it is quite a range. Cool. Yeah. Cool. So we talked about pricing. I mean, you said that's hard. Is there anything that uh, would you would consider as like a challenge that you consistently face? Um, every every book restoration project is completely different. Mm. So that's an interesting. I think that's why I, I I do quite enjoy doing it. And I think that's why because it is different every time. So I can actually. Um, come up with creative solutions and stuff and and it's not repetitive necessarily whereas mm-hmm. binding thesis is repetitive right. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly the same thing every time um, and they come in batches of 30 or whatever and very repetitive so when I can stop doing the repetitive work it's really nice to do the stuff that requires me to actually use skills and analysis that I don't get to use on those other things. Mm. You know what? Um, I like that you said that actually the, the analysis part uh, and the, just the, the way your brain has to actually kind of use, use like problem solving skills. It is problem solving. Yeah. 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 Because I mean, very rarely are two books going to have the same problems um, unless they're, from a, a set <laughs> um, and and they have both suffered the same problem that can happen but most most of the time they're they're all different it, yeah so it cool. is it's a, it, g- it gives me a chance to be creative in problem solving I guess yes. right, yeah right cool so uh, what piece of advice would you give someone who was like looking at into bookbinding as a, a business person? Do you actually, how do you feel about that? As like, how do you feel talking about it as a business versus, you know? Yeah. Um, for I didn't, I used to not like to say that I had a business. Okay. <laughs> uh, but I mean, I do. It's fine now. I'm, okay. I'm kind of, <laughs> I, I, have go. <laughs> I have my own business. It's fine. I acknowledge it's. It's a real business. I mean, I've been doing it long enough. You have to admit some of the practicalities eventually. Yeah. Um, no, it's it's fine. Um, I would say if someone wanted to start a business as a bookbinder, they should not do it to make money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it's not a get-rich-quick scheme, that's for sure. Uh, there is a lot of... I feel like you you would need quite a bit of experience behind you to get to the point of being able to offer enough services to make it a full range, to keep yourself busy for a whole 
like full time. Yeah. Like if you only did um, blank journals that I'm not sure that, that there's enough market there for you to, I mean, maybe there is for somebody, but I think the fact that I do all of those things where I'm making some journals and some editions and theses and book restoration and teaching and um, a few, whatever else comes up, prop books, making books for TV and stuff, those it's kind of all of that stuff, mm -hmm. but they, but they're not all the same skill set. Mm -hmm. This is not helpful information for a budding bookbinder, but um, uh, probably just getting a really good foundation because there is a lot of specialized tools and materials. And there's, there's things like um, understanding the chemistry of glue, mm -hmm. <laughs> which um someone who's taken one class or done a couple of tutorials online might not be aware of, but yeah. knowing it actually means your books will be better in the end. Mm -hmm. So there's a few things like that, that, you know, I don't, I don't, I'm not a scientist, but I do know, <laughs> I do know sort of what I need to know yeah. about how, um, you know, cellulose fibers bond to cellulose glues. <laughs> right. But you know what? I mean, you said that it wasn't necessarily helpful, but I picked up a lot from that. I picked up basically be an expert at your craft. I mean, and I, you could apply that to whatever. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You said book binding specifically, but just being at least an expert in what you do, but also being um, diverse and versatile. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like if when something slows down, you've got something else that you can lean on and, and not necessarily have all of your eggs in one basket. Yeah. I think that that's probably true for a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, so how do people find you online if they want to learn more? Right. Uh, that, that blog I mentioned is <laughs> myhandboundbooks.com. Um, it has a, it's been there for, as I said, since 2007 and some of the early posts are kind of embarrassing, but, uh, oh, but it does have, for people who are interested in, in actually making books in, in 2000, uh, what year was that? 2015 on January 1st, I made this ridiculous uh, new year's day commitment to post 365 different book structures on my blog during that year. And they would be all made differently and they'd all be made by me. And, <laughs> And I, and it was in response to people saying, how do you make a book? And I would say, oh, there's hundreds of ways to make a book. And people would find, would be a bit skeptical of that answer. And so I made this commitment to myself and it took me 455 days, but I did do 365 books in 455 days, wow. which are posted on my blog. Some of them were pictures from that I'd made like, the book a year earlier or something. Oh, okay. I did I didn't make them all on the day that they're posted. Okay. But and I thought I'd have a nice little back catalog of things to draw from, but it quickly ran out and I had to <laughs> that's why towards the end of the year there tended there's some gaps in there. But I did get it done and uh but it I think uh, has I've had a number of people email me saying that it turned <laughs> they really appreciate the resource because it's just a lot of information and I kind of post, you know, where you, you can get information on each of them as I do them. 
So that's my handboundbooks.com. Um, I also have scotiabookbinding.com. And I use my handbound books as my handle on Instagram and Facebook. Okay. Yeah. Well, Rhonda, thank you very much for being a, a participant in Craft Pays Me. Yeah, thank you. It's been great. Thank you for listening to our special Craft Pays Me series. Thank you to Langy Beats for the theme music. You can find them on YouTube. Just search L-A-N-G-I Beats. And thanks again to Craft Nova Scotia for making this possible and Arts Nova Scotia for the support. If you got anything out of this, please rate, review, or leave a comment on whatever platform that you're listening. You can find out more about Art Pays Me at artpaysme.com, or you can hit me up on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Clubhouse. I'm at Art Pays Me on all of those platforms. And with that, we're out. See you next time. Peace.